Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is an audio version of the video version that goes out live at 3pm British time every Sunday on our YouTube channel, a science Q&A, a different topic each week, always hosted by Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Different guests each week. As such, bear in mind there might be a couple of moments that are more suited to the original visual format, particularly in the show and tells at the start. But that shouldn't hamper your enjoyment too much of this podcast version. And also, since it goes out live as well, everyone's on different broadband speeds, different microphones, different settings. So there might be a couple of little bits of audio dropout or echo or the random things that one encounters when doing something live over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. You all know how finicky doing these video conferencing things can be by now. If you want to support the show, help us keep making it each week, keep making it free for everyone. You can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and support us on there and get yourself various rewards and goodies and exclusives for doing so as well, including two Patreon-only podcast documentary series, an uncanny hour which looks at some of the overlooked gems and oddities of culture, like why humans continue to believe in alien visitation via UFOs and the films of John Carpenter and David Cronenberg, as well as our latest series, Tips for Existence, which is Robin Ince in conversation with scientists and artists about searching for meaning in a meaningless universe. Some guests on that show include Brian Green and Tim Minchin and Neil Gaiman and Andrean and Nicole Stott and Chris Jackson, Carlo Ravelli and lots more as well. And now, here is this week's episode of the Science Shambles Sunday Q&A show. Hope you enjoy. Hello, welcome to Sunday Science Q&A. And uh, today we're doing a special astronaut special with uh, Helen Sharman, uh, which we're really looking forward to. There's there's one slight, I should tell you, there's a couple of things that have gone slightly wrong initially. One is that uh, my camera's not working, so I've got not got the normal kind of uh, uh, high quality, which is good for you, actually, because you don't want to see this in high quality. The second slight glitch is uh, that we can't find Helen Sharman. But apart from that, our Helen Sharman special is going extremely well. I do have this pen, though, from her uh, speakers management and if you look at that i don't know if you can see it's a little torch there so if we don't have helen sharman i'll just keep showing you this excellent torch based pen but we do have kevin fong who uh i think as far as i know the second most listened to science show of uh 2019 uh that was on the bbc bbc um, not going to um, say what the first one was oh i'm blushing anyway um but it was 30 minutes to the moon that was scrap 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're right. Fair enough, Kevin. We had two more episodes than you. I reckon if that was taken into account. Um, but Kevin Fong's 13 minutes, the man, it was, I, I have not spoken to anyone who has not just utter delight of how deeply uh, it, it went, how beautifully it was made, how many fascinating stories and fascinating voices there were. So we'll be talking about that um, as well. Uh, quick couple of things to mention. Uh, if you can support us via Patreon, that is fantastic. I know a lot of you do support us via Patreon already. We've had a kind of a bit of a week off. We did have one episode of Tips for Existence on uh, Wednesday uh, with Adrian Owen, uh, who's a very interesting uh, neuroscientist who's done a lot of work uh, with patients who appear to be in vegetative states. Um, and that was a, a 
great conversation with him about uh, consciousness and other things and uh, very much a kind of practical conversation about consciousness not that one that gets highly uh, philosophical and leads absolutely nowhere because there are many of those as well and I'm very adept at taking people to conversations that lead nowhere uh, so if you can support us via Patreon that's fantastic uh, send us live questions uh, via live chat or you can tweet us uh, at Cosmic Shambles and uh, next week we're going to we're changing the time because we decided as it got into the summer and of course all of you in the last week have just you know spend a lot of time out in the sunshine you've been really basking in the sunshine um, or just basking in trying to watch the Glastonbury Festival and not being able to get through to that as well there's been a lot of basking obviously in the last week so we're going to move the show to 10am so uh, Sundays from now on Sunday Science Q&A we thought 10am might be a better time uh if we'll try that for a few weeks and also do give us your feedback you might consider that uh middle afternoon is better but we think when it does get sunny uh people won't necessarily have hung around the house all day uh to hear uh these conversations though i hope you will you should we, you know that's the way that a cult works and that's how we see it uh, we're also joined by helen chersky if, as usual helen how are you i'm i'm doing very well i have been out in the rain today in the rain today so i when unexpected showers the best of british summer weather where you get a shower where you didn't expect one uh so yes i'm doing very well and the reason i don't have a this week in science this week is because um helen Sharman obviously is our this week in science because on the i think it was the 18th of may 1991 she she launched to join um into space becoming britain's first astronaut uh and it's very you know people people had to be reminded of that i think around the time tim peak went up uh but she was even though she didn't fly with the flag i think kev probably knows the details better than me uh so yes yeah, so she is our this week in science even though there's a some kind of technical glitch so we've not quite got her yet but we will i'm sure looking back you should have prepared her this very let down by helen <laughs> um and kevin as well let's let's go uh over to you because this is uh and and as I, I will also mention this. Kevin, of course, is a doctor as well, and uh, we're not going to do any questions about COVID-19. Kevin's done an enormous amount of work in, in the last year, and I'm sure some of you might be following him on Twitter or seeing some of the different articles that he's been tweeting as well about working in a hospital. We will hopefully do that at some point, but today we are going to keep it to space exploration. So, Kevin, I want to ask you, first of all, though, when does your fascination begin? Because you have such a deep fascination, and you're too young to have been sat at the telly watching you know, Apollo 11. When does it kick in? Yeah. So, 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 you know, I've always said, oh, well, the thing that made me pursue a career in science was was always space. But of course, it was my parents. But the two are related because my parents turn up. They know they have to find some way to drive my ambition and my, you know, uh, uh, my interest really with education. And they don't really understand how to do that. They, 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 they themselves don't have that much of an education when they first come to this country. But they know that everyone, this is the 1970s, are just talking about space exploration all the time. And they think this is an idea that's big enough. And, and that's the thing that really has stayed with me. This is an idea that's big enough for us to talk as a family around the dinner table about it in whatever way you want to. And they dragged me out of bed. Uh, dragged is probably a reasonable. It's 1975. They dragged me out of bed Thursday evening um it was lovely we'd been to the market that day i had one of those cars where you span the wheels and the sparks went off inside it in the dark i remember you know all of that and and it's the apollo soyuz test project 1975 alexei leonov tom stafford shaking hands and of course i'm four years old so the <laughs> the subtleties of the geopolitics of that were lost on me but you know you're watching these people float down a tunnel a cramped tunnel and floating flags back and forth and shaking hands and embracing like they're the best friends of all time and that stayed with me and 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 i think to a child growing up 
the idea that you can fire people off the face of the planet at 25,000 miles an hour to get to another planetary body um, uh, meant that anything but anything this life must be possible. So it's, it started there and it's stayed with me ever since. Do you have, I mean, obviously you've since then, Leo, you know, looked back at so much footage of other launches. Do you have, uh, I, I was thinking, I remember talking to Rusty Schweikart about uh, Apollo 17. I think it's Apollo 17 was the only nighttime launch. Is that right? Am I, am I getting that? Uh, you, uh, you might be right. That I don't know. And I've never seen a nighttime launch, and I really want to because it's meant to be like an almost religious experience. You know, you watch the day, the night turn to day, and um, I've seen a few launches, but not that. Because that's what he said. He was there with a philosopher who kind of looked at astronauts as just being this John Wayne kind of American fantasy. And then this philosopher saw this and, you know, the noise and to see it as I, I can't remember how late at night it was. But he said, you know, everyone was in t- it becomes even more, you know, the, the, the resonance of it. So what is your favorite launch? Well, you know, my favorite. Well. My favorite launch is actually actually having watched, having been there to watch STS-135, the last shuttle, the last shuttle going uh, into space because it was deeply emotional because everyone wanted it off the ground and and the weather was really marginal and no one knew if it was going to go. And, and it was somewhere between, you know, a sort of the usual celebrations that you have around a launch, but it was, it was something sort of quite, quite elegiac about the whole thing uh, because this was the last mission so that was wonderful we were at two miles away and the thing here's the thing about any launch that you go to it's kind of like this exercise in massive cognitive dissonance because you're looking at this thing you're two miles from it you know how big it is you know how fast it now must be moving and you think none these things can't be true together it can't be that big and moving that fast and, and and going right now and it will shortly be in space and so that launch for me was such a visceral experience because at two miles you see the light and it flashes over and then you you do feel it in your chest it just comes through your chest and resonates your whole thoracic cavity so um that one for me was was the launch uh and, and the last the last shuttle to go it is interesting though how these things come so I'm, I'm 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 a little bit younger than you and so i never watched the launches as a kid and i feel that i grew up in an era where it was a thing that was on the news like rockets went and it was kind of they were always there right but when it hit me was actually when that shuttle came down and it was because of something um our friend adam Adam rutherford did who i think was working at nature at the time and he put together this video where it was a series of shots of a single shuttle flight but every shot was from a successive launch so the first the first shot you see is from the astronauts from the first ever shuttle launch and then they took that that last shot is of that flight landing and they edited it in that morning and put it out. And it was only when I saw that video, when you see, because you see the hairstyles change, you see um, Challenger, you know, you see these bits along the way, you see how the people change and how, how it's, but how it stays this kind of pure experience of putting humans into space. And actually that watching that, which I recommend, it's probably on YouTube somewhere, I highly recommend going to find it, was the first time I really understood the enormity of the Enterprise, because I'd just grown up with shuttles kind of, coming and going which sounds awful now but but the, but the success the, the success of the shuttle was that it almost became the backdrop you know it was the item that had happened in the news shortly before or after the skateboarding duck type item and, and and the success of it really was you know that it formed a, a bridge really to the future that 
we talk about the space age and we think about that being Apollo, but the space age for me at least was shuttle because shuttle was so much of that technology raining down into our lives and changing our lives. So, uh, I, you know, these, the shuttle program, I think was one of those things that you don't really appreciate it when it's there. You appreciate it once it's gone. There is no machine ever built that is as complicated as shuttle was. And we won't see another one for quite a long time. I mean, look at what we've gone back to as wonderful as all the new vehicles are, the vehicles themselves are nowhere near, nowhere near as complicated as shuttle was, and that was that was part of its success, and that was part of, uh, of of its downfall, really. But there's that interesting thing about complexity, isn't there? So I've just there we get, so I've just read uh, Tescott's the book about Virgin Galactic, and you know their mission in space. And the thing that is really striking is this: it's almost a, two polar opposites. There's the most simple robot-powered thing. And there's the most complicated sort of human, you know, um, human piloted, but also it's it's sort of it's what you get on the way to the simple thing. It's like you have to go through the complexity to get to the simple thing. But people really like the complicated machines. And there's this, you know, this respect for test pilots and astronauts in the way that there isn't for a passenger. Um, and it feels is, is this a temporary period where we go through this bit where you need this enormous complexity and then it's going to get really boring and simple because it becomes routine. Well, I, th I think you're right there. I think when you're pioneering, you do go through this phase where you at least have one thing that looks a little bit like a rude Goldberg machine, you know, and, and uh, uh, until people realise what is the optimal complexity for this thing, you know, and I think cars, you know, you know, cars are like that, you know, you look at what happened to them and all the things we did and you settle down to some fairly basic form and it's form and function together. Um, I think I'm deeply encouraged by what's happening at the moment. I mean, look at it. I mean, look at what's happening with space exploration at the moment. And and there was a moment really when shuttle went away that you thought, is this when we fall back to Earth and become slightly less ambitious about everything? Because there definitely was a hiatus where I thought, I don't know if the momentum will continue. Um, and yet look at it and look at the suite of vehicles and endeavors there are now, not just in human space exploration, but also in remote sensing platforms and probes. Look at what we're putting onto Mars. Look at what's on Mars. Look at the helicopter helicopters on Mars. So um, I think that this period now is sort of that period where we sort of found, you know, the right, the right, uh, level of complexity and 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 now we're going to be able to use this thing to expand our reach quite dramatically so uh, this is the most most exciting period in space exploration that i can remember for quite some time and i'm looking forward to charting it over the next few years the uh mentioned by the way we still can't get through to helen uh trent who is our producer uh spoke to her yesterday and uh everything was clear so we don't know quite what's going on we hope everything is all right with her we will uh she may be joining us uh, later on otherwise kevin you got a lot of heavy lifting <laughs> uh, but i want to i this is something i want to do because some people might know about the fact that one of the episodes of the infinite monkey cage you were on was with brian blessed who called you something which i will now not repeat because we like the fact that uh younger people watch this as well and, and in fact some quite old people probably wouldn't like what he called you on that particular show but he can you tell us a little bit about what it was like you went with brian blessed to watch him having cosmonaut training he was in his 60s by then wasn't he i think a, a yeah yeah no, he was, he was. I, I mean brian is brian and i'm not sure there is a version of him that isn't the thing that you see in here on on, on, 
on, on the radio and the television. I actually had when they, they made this series called I think it was called Ascent of Mar- Mars Mountain. This idea that climbers would work out what it would be like to try and climb Mount Olympus, and, and so they did all sorts of craziness, and they managed to get Brian sort of in a spacesuit on the end of a rope climbing up bits of rock, and he sort of fancied himself as a bit of a mountaineer and. And in a different life, you could see him being this sort of heroic mountaineer type as well. So it all suits him down to the ground. But um, but he is a force of nature. We say that, right? We say that as an expression. They're, they're a bit of a force of nature. No, no. Brian Blessed is a force of nature. He should have a force of nature named after him. I mean, he, he is unbelievable. <laughs> and, and uh, well, I mean, as the episode of The Monkey Cage uh, that he was on attests to, he... Um, he he he's he's there in every moment of his life at full volume in full force. So, you know, uh, I'm not sure how long you could spend on a space station with him. But but, <laughs> but you see, that's you'd... an interesting thing about it because I I have to admit from my limited experience of working with him, which is he does this thing where he puts on the show that he knows people love, but when someone starts talking about, for instance, space exploration, in a, he just he drops out of it because he thinks I want to hear. And that's the thing that I like about him is he doesn't, he, he puts on a show, but he doesn't then crush everyone out. I mean, it's a weird thing because we talk about that episode and we know what happened in that episode. I think a lot of listeners don't because I think there was an enormous amount of editing because it goes out too early for that kind of language. Um, but it was, I mean, there was one thing, and I can't remember exactly what it is. That you, I'm going to give this in such a rough, weird way, but there's some kind of of uh, of, of chair, gyroscopic chair, I think, yeah, that's yeah. involved in training, which really affects through minute movement. Yeah. Seems to affect. Is it the middle ear? Uh, and yeah. Can so you tell? Because that I, I think was one of the big moments, wasn't so it? So it's called the Barani chair, and it's a chair that you use to um, stimulate the the. Uh, the the inner ear really to, to uh, and the way that it senses acceleration and and it's just a chair with well-oiled bearings that spins uh i think they had him in that and the thing about that chair is if you know what you're doing you can make almost anyone feel sick because uh you get them to close their eyes you spin them up you get them to put their ear on their shoulder their brain thinks their body is turning in one plane uh whereas actually they're actually turning in a different plane and then when they open their eyes and tilt their head up and stand up, the, the world is literally somersaulting. Uh, from your perception, is somersaulting head over heels. And uh, he didn't like that very much from recollection. So, uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, so I, you know, I, I'm not sure that I was actually with him when that was going on. Although he blames me for almost all of this. I think <laughs> I just I just advised on these experiments. So, uh, but this is interesting question, isn't it? isn't it about who goes into space and it's kind of become you know a rigid it's it's there's basically at the moment it was one group it was um proper nasa and russian you know cosmonauts and astronauts and then there's sort of this new breed which is coming along which is very rich people but for everyone else i think that there's it seems like at the beginning and kev you would know this much better than me that there were you needed you needed a test pilot because you had to fly a thing that no one had ever flown before and then there's this period where you need people who get on with each other because they're going to be, you know, hanging around in space and that you need them to be able to do experiments for other people and all that kind of thing. And fundamentally, if you wanted to be 
you know, if anyone does work out the radiation problem and, and humans get to Mars, you need someone you're going to be happy to be in a very confined space with for a very long period of time. Is the type of person, and then you want the poets and the dreamers, you know, like Michael Collins, who died recently, his autobiography is such, uh, Carrying the Fire is such a fabulous book because he was a poet and a test pilot. Like, how, what sort of astronauts do we want in the future? Much there. The first thing is about selection. So at the at the start of the space age, no one knew who we wanted to send in space. No, no one knew who should be a space explorer. And although it seems sort of obvious or given now that test pilots should have been the right phenotype, they did think about almost everything. They thought about you know deep sea divers. They thought about submariners. They thought about people who did you know long range industrial jobs. And it came down to the test pilots in the end, but it. It isn't as straightforward as you think, partly because those systems were built to be completely automated originally, and they didn't think there would be that much of a job for pilots to do. Um, and, and actually, the book that captures that era of, of who is an astronaut and what is it to be an astronaut that captures it more than anything else is Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff. I mean, a beautiful, beautiful book. Uh, but it talks about the ziggurat and who was at the top of the ziggurat and who you had to beat up to get to the top of the pile. And I, I remember interviewing Walt Cunningham, uh, uh, you know, who was Apollo seven, uh, 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 pilot. Uh, and, uh, and I talked to him, I said, well, you know, what was it like being these sort of insanely competitive fighter jocks and everyone wondering who was on the top of the pile? You know, how did you set that aside to fly with them as crews on Apollo? And he turned around and he looked at me and he said, who said we set that stuff aside? And 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 that that's true, right? So they they were competitive till the you know the last day that they, they were in the astronaut. Well, you know, and even beyond that, I think. And you're right. Then you go into the era of shuttle, and not only does it move out of this sort of basically white chisel jawed male uh, test pilot phenotype, it moves into well, now we're going to fly other people we're going to fly women we're going to fly scientists uh, we're, we're going to fly a much broader cross-section of society and over that 30-year period you see spaceflight becoming accessible to not the full range of people in the united states but but in a much broader cross-section nasa tried really hard really hard to have its astronaut corps as representative as it could of of the, the at least the ethnicity and and the gender uh, makeup of the united states and what I love now is as we go into the future, we're looking at a future in which space might be accessible pretty much to all of us. Now, there'll be a big financial tag with that for a while. But I, I, I kind of, that's pretty hopeful, right? And that's what you want. That's what you want a future in which this thing is not just a preserve of a, of a discrete elite. You do want it accessible to all. So I kind of look forward to that. You talked about Michael Collins there, and Michael Collins, I just have to tell you this, uh, he, he was wonderful when we interviewed him. He was the first interview we did for 30 Minutes of the Moon, and I'll never forget, we pulled up to the car park, it was nighttime. it's in Florida, I get out, there's a good, not quite a full moon, but there's a good chunk of the moon you can see in the sky on the clear night, and you're thinking, tomorrow I am going to be talking to a guy who's been around that thing at close range a few times. And his daughter, Kate, who was lovely, who helped us get the interview, said, sure, sure, you know, come and interview him. He's up for it. Uh, if he thinks you're asking bad questions, he'll kick you out of the room. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. And you roll up. And he's there. 
and he greets us, you know, he's waving to us from the door and his Floridian fatigues, you know, he's got a pair of sandals and uh, shorts and a T-shirt. And interviewing him was probably the most terrifying interview I've ever done with anyone because you you were aware that he wouldn't suffer falls. And what that would mean is your long trip ended in a 10 minute interview with you saying, thanks for coming, guys, get out. And and and. And I think, well, okay, but once we get going and I've got a bit of a rapport going with him, we'll be fine. It was not like that. It was like being in a dogfight for the whole of the hour and a half we were there. And when I thought he was in front of me and in my sights and I had him and I wanted and, and I was going to ask him the question, he was behind me and hosing me down. And, um, and, and every question you asked, he delivered this beautiful sort of soliloquy of a reply or nothing at all and and that that was that was really interesting because to me because he's a fighter pilot right he's not you ask him are you a fighter pilot or an astronaut he's like you know there's no there's no question there he identifies as a pilot beyond everything and as a fighter pilot uh, it's it's a performative thing so so he was going to give me gold or nothing and that was him in the air thinking either i'm going to do this incredible incredible looping hypersonic maneuver or I'm going to do nothing and stay where I am. Uh, and and so we had a lovely interview, but the full tape of that interview is quite hilarious because there's some quite awkward moments where you'll you'll put together what you think is a great question and go, I got nothing. I got no- I got nothing for you. And you're like, uh, okay, we'll move on. So um, I was very sad to see him go. Uh, he, you're right in what you say of all of the Apollo crews. I think he was the most emotionally intelligent and most emotionally in touch. And and. And afterwards, I came to think, if you want to be, if you had to ask, who do you want to be, Armstrong, Aldrin or Collins, you wanted to be Collins. You know, he was so at ease with himself. He was so happy with his place in that mission and in life. So, yeah, he, he was a great guy. You must have been terrified, though, that a little in your head would suddenly the first question would be so at one point you must have been the loneliest human but, oh my god oh my god i've said it oh my. <laughs> we, we, yes, I, I imagine that's where the show it show you the door comes from which is generally um what did it feel like or are you with the loneliest the, those kind of astronaut questions are the ones where you go make sure you cross those out of your head as early as possible <laughs> Just don't we, we we were we were pre-warned about the were you the loneliest man ever because <laughs> because that that was definitely you're going out the door thing As, uh, to the point where you know it became one of those things sort of like that thing that uh, you know ironic processing you, you you thought you might just blurt it out at one point and at one point i asked something completely different and he thought it was that quite he said are you now asking me if i'm the loneliest person <laughs> in the history of lonely i'm like no no mike I'm... and what actually the interesting thing that he said about that was he hated that question because he said a he wasn't alone because he had you know for the most part there were very brief periods when he was radio silent on that and b Again, as a fighter pilot, he knew what it was be to be in the cockpit of a, of a vehicle on your own with no one talking to you. And he actually quite liked that time. That time is there to be enjoyed. So he, he, he you know, as we boxed around it, he, he ended up saying, look, you know, of course I was alone, but I wasn't lonely. But yeah, you're, you're, I, I, I dreaded, I dreaded, getting, I just didn't want the ignominy of getting kicked out of an interview with Michael Collins. So we just about got there. <laughs> it's an, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? That uh, we'll get onto audience questions actually in a moment. 
Um, but it's so we should say for it, 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 Kevin not only is, is, a, is a, a medical doctor dealing with uh, kind of on planet Earth, who has a great knowledge in terms of uh, the different health uh, situations that might arise uh, during space exploration, and also has done a lot of the training and stuff like that. But um, that interview thing is, I, I remember Christopher Sykes, who amongst many things made the, the, the series of interviews with Richard Feynman, and he said it was really interesting. One of the first things you learn as an interviewer is don't immediately follow up with another question because if you leave silence someone then goes oh but and he said with Feynman he went oh no it doesn't it literally is no 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 I've given you everything there and so he would leave these spaces and then go no next question then uh, about Los Alamos um this is let's start off with a question from Mariella hello Mariella she's just watched uh the film Stowaway uh which she said apparently is, is 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 pretty accurate you can tell us whether that's true Kevin or not and uh it said the long sequence depicting the launch seems so much more violent than Mariella had imagined uh how do you train for that kind of violent sh shaking yeah so I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things about that one is I, I did watch it uh, it's not it's an okay film um uh I love it because the, in it, they've got this artificial gravity spaceship, which is the best, I think, depiction of what a real artificial gravity spaceship would look like. I think it's based upon the... There is a NASA mission reference document that, that has... You know, so what you would end up having is something that is sort of this counterweight with a vehicle on one side and the whole thing spinning around it. And it's basically the diameter of the London Eye. And that's what they've built. So I liked that. The launch is also pretty accurate because... People totally underestimate how uh, well for shuttle that the, the launch is violent. I'm told that that, that for Soyuz it's much less so because Soyuz goes up on liquid rockets and they're a bit smoother. The onset of uh, thrust is is a lot gentler. And indeed, uh, my friend Mike Barrett, my good friend uh, who's also a doctor and an astronaut, sort of says that the only really way you know you've launched. Uh, when you're on Soyuz is you watch the mission clock start ticking up. He says, you know, it's kind of gentle. Shuttle was different. Shuttle is really violent. When you see the cockpit cam of that, you know, you've got a whole bunch of people going like this. And and, and they and, your webcam was moving as you did that. So. <laughs> That's always good. It's always good Star Trek special effects there. Uh, and so, you know, you've got these emergency cards with font about this big on them. And they all say you've got to memorize that because you, you, you can't read it. Your eyeballs are going up and down too much. And that was all about the solids. So the solid rocket boosters um, have a lot of early, quick onset violent thrust. And so that's why you, I mean, I mean, you, you should look it up on, on YouTube or whatever, the cockpit cam of any of those launches that they've got. In fact, the one from STS-135, uh, the, the, the crew got such a massive smile on their faces. They're going, but they're really bouncing up and down. So yeah, that stuff is pretty violent. Uh, you don't train to deal with it. Um, uh, they build a vehicle that deals with you dealing with it. So, so you're strapped in and you're not going anywhere. And anything that isn't strapped in and strapped down is going to be all over the place, which you don't want. So it's about the vehicle design rather than your training to deal with it. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for that question. Uh, Neville was wondering, uh, how much has astronaut training changed since the time that Helen would have been uh, training? Because so, I think she had, she had shorter training than you generally have now, didn't you? Didn't she? I'm, I'm not sure. I can't remember. Uh, she well, had two it, years, did she? So, 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 and it depends on what depends on what. So, so it depends on what you mean by training. So, uh, you get selected as an astronaut, 
and certainly in the in the NASA astronaut corps, you then do some general training, which is all about understanding what NASA is, understanding how the human space exploration bit works inside of that, and then general training about the sorts of vehicles that you might be going on. And then you get assigned to mission and you get mission-specific training. And that can go on for a long time and many, many years. And you train very specifically with your crew so that you gel as a crew and you can do the, uh, the, do the things that you're going to have to do on mission. And so those are very different things. The, the generic bit is basically learn you know learn to speak the language and learn these vehicles in a generic sense for for helen's mission um you know i think it was very focused you know she was going up on a, a soyuz and she's going to mir uh, and uh and so there was a lot uh, around that the way that the training has changed over time is basically nods to the different roles that the, the, the crews have so again it's mission specific so the apollo crews are trained very much like test pilots because the things they're flying are very much test articles uh, and, and and the crescendo of the apollo project the landing on the moon is this very very I, I think that last 13 minutes down to the moon is very much like a test pilot operation. You're there with a with a system that is the very skinny limits of its ability to perform, in which basically bits of it are failing and and not quite working the way you want them to, and you have to make a decision about whether you punch out or whether you continue. I think um, when we move into the era of shuttle, you then have sort of two different training streams. They selected, and NASA selected sort of uh, pilot astronauts separately from the mission specialists. And the mission specialists were sort of the back, in many ways, the sort of the backseat science teams. They did take part in the mission as mission engineers as well, but 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 they had a slightly different uh, training overall. They weren't expected to fly the vehicle. They were expected to be able to maintain it and prosecute the science. And, and as we go forwards into the future, I think increasingly you're going to see this move towards astronaut crews becoming more and more, as the vehicles become more capable, more reliable, and more automated, you're going to begin to get a cadre of astronauts who are much more like the British Antarctic Survey types, who are very brilliantly trained, but actually delivering there is not routine, because spaceflight can never be routine, just simply because of the energies involved. Um, but but it will become more uh, well le less less immediately life threatening, and you'll have these people who are trained to be scientists in a particular environment. And I think that's the model for the future. I think that's the way it will change. The type of person has changed more than anything else. I think, as as you rightly say, you want not people who are individuals who are great at individual performance over short sprints of time, but rather people who can live in an environment and get on and work together. Uh, 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 for long periods of time, you know, because because the cooperation, the cohesion between your crew is the sole determinant of, well, is one of the principal determinants of mission success. So I think it's a move away from individualism and towards teamwork. What's the reason that? So one of the things I guess is 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 who who's flying the object, right? So on the International Space Station at the moment, you know, presumably it's making orbital adjustments a little bit. It might it might go up or down in orbit. It might adjust its solar panels. Is any of that done from the ISS itself, or is it is it controlled from the ground? And the, and like, how much are the astronauts up in the up in the sky actually doing things to keep the ISS on track? Yeah, so that's a really fascinating question, isn't it? Because let's go back to Apollo again. You look at mission control, and the thing that your mind is tricked into thinking when you look at it is that that. that 
this is a room full of computers and people in front of computers, but those things are not computers. Those things are cathode ray tube screens that show data and some telephones with dial, rotary dial telephone things on it. So that, when, when I spoke to the flight controllers, you know, they said, well, look, we didn't fly the vehicle. We, we monitored it and then we told the astronauts what adjustments they needed to make, you know, or, or gave them advice about the adjustments they might make. Um, I, I was very lucky. I managed to embed with a flight control team who are in simulation, uh, an international space station flight control team. Now, they, they very really do fly the space station. You know, they're there flicking switches and boosting orbits and all the rest of it. Um, and so they have got remote control of a lot of the things. And, and space station takes a lot of effort to keep up there. You know, you think it's just up there and floating, but it's, it's orbit's always decaying. It needs to boost the orbit. It's got a whole bunch of kit on board that stops it spinning out of control. It's got these four huge gyroscopes that stop it doing that. But the astronauts on board are the sort of on-the-shop floor um, sort of complex monitoring system and complex intervention system. And so they do need to be tooled up to be able to both uh, repair, adjust, and, and you know, and that's and, and do essential essential maintenance on the vehicle so that it can keep flying. So, are the astronauts flying it? Well, yes and no, but 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 and they have access to some of that control, but they don't do it alone. You know, they're heavily heavily backed up by 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 flight control room. Uh, I should tell you now that uh, we think it, it was actually a technical issue. We should we should never have sent uh, Helen all the way to the pyramid stage of Glastonbury uh, to try and broadcast to us, but she. Uh, with luck, uh, it's going to join us in about five minutes' time. Um, quick question for you, Helen, which is, uh, this is from Eileen, would like to know if you could take a bubbles experiment onto the ISS or even on the zero-G flights like you did with Shambles, what would you like to do? And so you can make it quick. I actually didn't it. hear that question because Helen has just joined us. <laughs> and I was too busy uh, being excited nice she joined you us. You still get so excited about seeing an astronaut that you actually go deaf. It's a remarkable thing that happens, <laughs> isn't it? Well, we'll come back to your bubble experiment later on because we can always ask you that next week, whereas Helen isn't with us next week. Hello, Helen. Thank you very much for joining us. Hello. I am so sorry. I'm, I thought I was joining you for four o'clock. So I thought, oh, I'm in plenty of time. I'm going to log on at about half past three. My laptop has taken almost 10 minutes to update and I'm getting all of these. Uh, oh, my goodness. Where are you? So I am so sorry. But here I am. Don't worry. We're going to see if you can now do. We've got 50 questions. We've got uh, 19 minutes. I'm sure it's absolutely fine. We'll be able to get <laughs> through them all. We'll be able to I'm get through them all. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. This is, uh, where should we start? Uh, this is, uh, this is uh, from Lisa. Lisa would not like to be Britain's first astronaut mean anything to you during your mission? Or were you so focused on the job at hand? I think, um, yes, it, I think um, yes, it meant something because um, a lot of what I was doing, even during my training, was because I was British. Um, so we were little celebrities in the Soviet Union. So if there was a, a big training uh, meeting somewhere, then, of course, it would be me who had to go and make a speech rather than one of the many Russian trainees. So I kind of was aware then. But actually, when it came to launch day, uh, I was in keen of course everybody wants to do a good job but I really didn't want to mess thing up for the British side I didn't want it that the British astronaut you know caused the mission to go wrong let's say so yeah I think it, it definitely meant something and I, I wanted to make sure I did a really good job partly because of being British I think yes now and I was representing Britain too of course you know but it felt it felt important thing to do yeah I mean it was it was uh, looking I can't believe it is 30 years ago because it just I remember 
so much that just what a re- remarkable sense that was to actually feel that Britain was now somehow actually you know really tangibly involved in going into space. Um, this is uh, this is very important for perhaps a lot of people listening. Uh, with the European Space Agency uh, applications currently opening uh, or currently open, what would you say is your best bit of advice for how to try and get through? I think, of course, you've got to have all the basic criteria that they say, um, but there will be many who have that. I think what they're really going to be looking for are people who work well in different types of teams. So are you a kind of the type of person who always wants to lead or never voice your concerns, right? Um, Of course not. You need to be that kind of middle kind of person who's um, easy to get on with, tolerant of other people. Um, You you put forward your ideas, but your ideas don't always have to hold sway. You're happy to take consensus. So it's just being a regular kind of team worker. But um, I think you'd be amazed how many, how many People, if they've, if they've not worked in in teams, especially if they've not worked in teams with in sort of in fairly high pressure situations, um, I can see Kevin nodding here. I, I think that's that must be a big thing in um, in A and E and sort of emergency um, medicine, mustn't it? But it's not me, for me to ask, Robin. That's for you to ask the question. <laughs> The um, this is a question from and this is an I think we talked about this a bit on the last Infinite Monkey Cage actually, which was um, about though we can test the physical capabilities of someone. Uh, have you had any thoughts about how we test the mental impact on something like the crewed trip to Mars, which of course is many people's great worry? Is how can a human being deal with with that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I don't don't think we'll ever really know. There will be until we've got humans out there. But there have been people in isolation. I mean, obviously, it's not on their own. They'll be part of a crew, but they've been in teams of people in isolation. There was that Mars 500 project, wasn't it? So people were away for 500 days to build kind of Mars mission time. And we've had people go to you know other outposts. If you've been on um, um, training missions in various parts of the world or, or um, missions on, if you like, for your operation for your company the Antarctica for instance well that's quite a big team of people there so we do know what it's like to be isolated but never to be that far away from earth and um, never to have your signals take so long potentially to get back to either support on earth and then then from earth back up to you I mean, it could be over 20 minutes when Mars is as its most distant so I think yes it's going to be quite a different kind of crew we're going to need a very um, multi-skilled crew but also people who can double up on skills because if one person is for whatever reason unable to do what they're supposed to do somebody else is going to have to be able to take over so yeah a very big sort of give and take flexibility of a crew and um, yeah that isolation is going to be something I think we'll all be asking them about when they get back. Well that's interesting actually because it's something that I you know because I go to sea and we you know it's a weird environment you come home and everyone talks about what it's like to go away nobody ever talks about how weird it is to come home and that's actually far harder of in my experience the tra- the far harder transition is to come back to society and go oh isn't it weird <laughs> I, when um, when I was living in Russia in the Soviet Union my training I was if you like very cut off from the UK it was before internet so there were no emails we had no telephone to make a call back to the UK unless I used the Russian landline that I had to book four or five days in advance you know it's ridiculous really and I would come back on occasion I'd fly back to London meet with the mission managers and I'd see adverts that I hadn't seen before there were jokes going around about things that had happened in the news that I didn't understand so it was all that that aspect of isolation I think as well as um, the fact that you know you've physically not been around other people so much people like you 
So this this crew uh, Mars against Bia, very very tight. But you're right. I think you're coming back. It's a bit more of the anticlimax in some respects. Although I think because there'll be so much clamour for um, for hearing about their experiences, perhaps they won't feel it. You know, when you're an astronaut, I think everybody assumes that you land on the surface of the Earth and then everybody goes, mm, well, that's it then, isn't it? But of course, you know, you get all of that debriefing and, and it does go on for weeks and months afterwards sometimes. So, yeah, I think the, the Mars crew won't have that anticlimax. Is that what you're thinking, Helen, about the kind of... Well, just that? so it's actually actually what you in my, you know, it's a much smaller type of experience, but you you sort of look at society from the outside and it's really odd there's all these things that we do that are just weird. And because you've been in such close contact with such a small number of people and so completely in tune with so many people, you know, the small group of people for so long, and you arrive back and people people sort of don't talk to you and they talk about the wrong things. And there's these, these lumps of metal that everyone carries around. And you can't do anything unless you go through your lump of metal. And no one, like, no one's really interested in you. And <laughs> yeah, it sounds really stupid but you know when you're on these expeditions you're kind of checking in with people all the time right and it's those and and you sort of re-examine society it's just like you know you take away and you go oh why does why do people do this like this and it's it's just interesting as a shock and maybe you're right that being the because once you come back from an astronaut being that you know being in space you're you're guided through you you're not the only one and all of that whereas we're just chucked out you know you arrive at gatwick airport and they go oh off you go you go oh, i don't fit here anymore it was nice on the ship. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I, I found that after Brian's luxury tours. When I do a tour with Brian and then, you know, at Heathrow we say goodbye and it's back to normality as he's picked up, you know, by his Sherpa and carried back to his house. Um, I wanted to ask, Helen, actually, which is good. We've talked about this before, but it really interests me that your values changed a great deal, didn't they? Or, or, or certainly things were brought to life, weren't they, by that experience? And, and not just the experience of going into space. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. So it was living in Russia at that time, the end of the Cold War. And people there, um, even in Moscow, which was, if you like, the most... Um, the, the, the place where they had the most stuff, you know, most things were more easily available than the rest of the country. But even in Moscow, it was really tough, um, a tough time for most citizens. They, food was in short supply, um, which is why they had all the queues. Um, you, you couldn't, couldn't buy clothes, shoes for love nor money. You know, it, it, they just weren't there um, in the shops. The shops were open, but they were empty. It was very, very difficult. And I think it was being amongst the type of people who... Um, therefore, didn't think about their material items as being very important, but they would come to my flat or they would phone me up or whatever and they'd say, um, how are you? And I'd say, oh, fine, thank you. How are you? And they said, oh, no, no. I mean, tell me, how are you? And they really wanted to know how I was. And there was a kind of a culture there. Now, whether that was because they hadn't had stuff or whether that was because that's just the way the Russians were, I don't know. But when I was in space, of course, looking back on the Earth, what you miss are the people there. You don't miss your material items, that sort of, this, all the stuff that we clamour so much to, you know, we strive to, to populate our houses with, don't we? we, our clothes or whatever it is. Um, it's almost like an extension of our personality. We're kind of showing off to the world partly, and it's, I don't know how much of it is, is for us, how much of it, yes, yeah, so I think there's a lot of that. And so I made a point after my space mission that, um, that, that people, individuals as well as people en masse but people were going to be and always be the most important thing in my life um neil got uh, a question neil would like to know what is the experiment you would most like to have done in space so if you could take one experiment up now what's the one you really enjoy doing well yeah so i've got my experiments were all 
Soviet space mission experiments because that was part of the deal that the British side had made with them. It was, if you like, part of our payment to get me into space. So I did Soviet experiments. Um, so it would have been nice to have done um, many, all of the British ones, of course. I did a few, but um, but uh, uh, very, very few, but those that, that basically didn't really cost anything to do. Um, there was one I do remember because um, I hadn't been involved with many of them um, because they were still being developed until the New Deal was made with the Soviets. But there was one and it was to do with um, body fluid shift and it was to do with measuring the um, uh, the, the impedance. So how, how if you like, electrically conductive or not, different parts of your body are. And so they were looking at the body fluid shift in space by this. Um, and part of this meant I was going to have to wear this, this huge elastic strap all around my chest and back with different um, sort of electrical connections on it. Um, and the strap had been initially designed with a very kind of elastoplast, like very, very sticky kind of gluey stuff on the back of this completely impervious, non-breathable material. And because it was a, just a, a sort of a, a developmental part of the, the experiment. And they gave this to me during one of my times over in the UK. And I took it back. I didn't have time to test it out then. They said, we want you to wear it for 48 hours, right? And just in test, tell us how it feels, stretch around in it. You know, is it stretchy enough? So I put it on and I could stretch in it and it was, it, that bit was fine. But after a while I started to think, you know, it's, it's a bit itchy. <laughs> and, and I took it off after 48 hours and I was bright red, right? <laughs> this, this huge band. Um, so clearly that, that bit was, was having to be redesigned, either the sticky stuff or the, how breathable it was or whatever. But course I got a whole load of ribbing when I went into the swimming pool I was wearing a swimming costume but the back was quite low so you could see this great big bright red band so of course I had to explain what was going on to my trainer and all the other astronauts in the swimming pool so it was a bit embarrassing um, so I think because, partly because of that I feel I have I've invested my uh, you know I, I have given pain for this experiment so I'd quite like to to take that one um, into space and, and, and do that one again I think they've, they've done similar ones subsequently so that would never actually be done now but yeah that, that would have been the one I think partly because I'd I was part way there with it. Phoebe has got a, a very specific chocolate question for you saying as you had worked for Mars Confectionery how does the quality of astronaut chocolate stack up to uh, Mars-based Earth chocolate? Well we actually have some chocolate in space I wasn't aware that there, were, there was going to be any and uh, Sergei my uh, engineer came um, came over one day and said look, look let's I found this bit of chocolate in the food let, let's let's share it and I, oh that'd be fantastic some chocolate um, and so there was all these little kind of portions so we, we took one each and, and we sort of simultaneously popped it into our mouths but it was the kind of chocolate that you'd normally get. You know, when you go into a really hot country and there's chocolate that can be developed with a very high melting point. Because clearly, if you're in the middle of, I don't know, sort of Africa or Saudi Arabia or something, your, your Mars bar is going to get a bit sort of soggy, isn't it? So that there's, um, chocolate normally melts at body heat 37 degrees, would melt often in these hot countries. So we, it can be developed with a different kind of crystal structure and fats in there that give it a higher melting point. And that's what this space chocolate was. I mean, clearly they didn't want it to melt, but um, but to me that wasn't chocolate. It was like sort of some sort of cocoa flavoured fat, which wasn't as wasn't half as exciting <laughs> as I was expecting. So I graciously let everybody else have um, have have the rest of the chocolate while I was in space. 
Uh, now this is uh, Christopher has got this is from this week's news and this is for everyone actually I'll, I'll start with you Kevin which is uh, Christopher wants to know your thoughts on the UFO report headed to Congress this week it's all going to be a, lo- a lot of nothing isn't it says uh, Christopher um, so this is something that's come up I mean if, if you look at the the history of UFOs and the history of Congress you'll see that really since the first you know those early sightings it's always cropped up there's always been a few senators who'd be kind of overly fascinated perhaps one could politely say yeah, look, I, I mean, do pilots up in the dark see stuff that they can't explain very easily? For sure. I'm sure that happens. Um, does that definitely mean that aliens have been visiting us with some sort of physics-defying vehicles that cross interplanetary space? I, it, I still find it hard to get that rationally through my head. Everything that you have to defy for that to happen, you know, when you really look at what has to happen you know, for for them to cross those vast, vast distances. I mean, there are more things in heaven and earth than my philosophy, but but I think weird things that pilots see in the dark that they can't explain don't necessarily go and become, you know, E.T. shaking your hand. You know, I, I don't have access to Area 51 or the files. H- Helen might. Helen might. I, I don't. <laughs> so, Helen, what, no. what do you feel about this uh, story? access to these files either Kevin um so um yeah what would I uh, there is clearly like Kevin says there are clearly unidentified things around right but just because they're unidentified and they're flying and they're objects doesn't mean to say that they're kind of um, they've got intelligent life that's designed them or them um, but we have to keep an open mind it'd be exciting to find intelligent life it's one of the reasons why we're sending all these rovers to mars is to look for at least evidence of some form of life even if it's not intelligent that would still make us go wild oh it's a microbe we'd be really excited um but yes to um i i don't get it either um we we haven't had there's not enough evidence there's not and people there's, there's just too much of this that's not not quite evidential enough um and um yeah it, it doesn't stack up with me either i'm afraid but if you want if you really wanted a genuine unidentified flying object you just go to the amazon and look for a type of fly that no one's given a name to yet right um i think chris lintop he told me once he um he pitched a book that was called why aliens don't exist and he no publisher would take it but one of them returned it to him with with so there was a title why aliens don't exist and the publisher had written underneath but we really wish they did Mm. and that's it that is everything. Yeah. That is like the scientist saying, "What you know? This is why they're not there." And everyone else, but but wouldn't it be nice? And that's the problem. Is it's just it's such a great mental game to play. You know, I think people are never going to stop playing it. But no, we, we want that. Um, the philosophy is lovely, isn't it? To actually to, to to think about what would we do if we met somebody. I mean, the, the Russians, of course, all think that um, that the these. Um, uh, these aliens uh, uh, come back, come down to Earth, and they talk to them in Russian, whereas we think they talk to us in English. Um, so there's a kind of a, a, bit, a bit of a weird thing in that. But then, of course, there'll be people who really believe that those aliens are real would say, "Ah, but they're just making you think things." So of course you'd think in your own language. There's always an excuse for something, you know. Oh my! As I was getting to the Mir space station, um, it was all a bit tense because we we're doing a manual docking. So there's a lot of people who are gathering in mission control, more than usual, a lot more journalists as well, and out of the window through one of the sort of the remote cameras they could see a ufo right it was a little cylindrical item now 
probably we all reckon it was a bit of rubbish that they'd actually chucked out of the space station naughtily. They shouldn't have done it because it was they'd done it not very not, not long before uh, docking. You should never do anything like that because it could happen in the same orbit and you could hit it. Fortunately, it was going at around about the same speed as us, of course, in the same direction. So it wasn't going to cause any harm. But there was this little cylinder. And of course, the first thing I get when I came back was... Um, Helen, tell us about the NLO, because it's, it's NLO in Russian, whereas it's UFO in English. Tell us about this NLO. What, what did it did it say anything? What did you see? Um, did it flash? And that that was, you know, I would say, fifty percent of all my questions from the Russians were about the um, the little cylinder of rubbish. It's fascinating, as you said. It's the leap, isn't it? Which is definitely there are unidentified flying objects. And that in no way means that they're going to be extraterrestrials in there. And you think of Loch Ness Monster and all of those things, you know, it only takes a couple of bits of footage. And then the moment someone says, I don't believe that they're alien spacecraft, somebody, what are you saying? There's no life in the rest of the universe. And you go, well, no, hang on that again. These are leaps. These are, um, but it's, it's always interesting. The religious side of it, I think is very interesting. I've, I've spoken to people where the whole UFO artifact almost now replaced what previously in the Catholic church would have been the religious artifacts. It's kind of, uh, but let's not talk, talk about Carl Jung yet. Um, this is uh, Spiral Cure would like to know, Helen, what do you think of the concept of short hop space travel between places on Earth? Oh, now this is exciting, I think, because, of course, Virgin's just very, very recently done its, um, its sort of hop to space and back. So this is really what we could be using kind of suborbital missions for um, and, and making it, um, you know, much less polluting on Earth, potentially. And, um, and yeah, getting us around the Earth much more quickly, if indeed we're physically going to be travelling around the Earth anytime soon. Um, but hopefully we will eventually again and, um, and we'll be able to do it in a slightly more green way. So, yeah, I think this is um, this is something that's, that's quite feasible and, um, and would, would really help us you know, to, to get around quickly. So, yeah, and, uh, and be quite an exciting thing as well. You might get a bit of feeling weightless on your way back down. That'd be good. <laughs> Uh, this is a question for you, Kevin, from Samuel. Do you think you'd make the cut for being an astronaut, given what you saw during the show you did with Chris Hadfield about? Uh, so you, so you, what was it called? So you want to be an astronaut? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was, it was called astronauts. Do you have what it takes? I think so. I, I've been in. I, I, I applied in two thousand and seven. Uh, uh, Tim did slightly better than me. Um, and uh, there's a, there's a last selection up at the moment. Uh, as many of you will know, uh, you have to be under fifty to apply. Um, and uh, and I am only just under fifty. And uh, so <laughs> I, I'm going to find out. <laughs> so I'll, I'll give it a, I, and i'm going to apply and i'm going to apply i'm going to apply not with any hope or expectation but for me i mean i told you at the start of this you know my journey my career my interest in science was my parents driving me using the vehicle of space exploration to drive my interest and ambition and so for me it feels like a very nice full stop actually so um so yeah you know that there are a lot of there are a lot of things that make you selectable as an astronaut and some of them are in your control and some of them aren't. Um, and you know, who knows? I think that whole process, well, Helen's been through it successfully, but, um, it, you know, I, I, anyone who go, goes out and thinks, yeah, sure. I could be an astronaut probably shouldn't be an astronaut and, <laughs> and, and probably has no business being out there with that. So, uh, uh, do I think I could get to restaurant selection? Gosh, I don't know. There, there are a lot of people lining up there and, and, uh, you know, a lot of people out there. So, uh, so the answer is I, I don't know, but I'm probably going to find out. Well, I'd just like to say, See, Kevin's done an enormous amount of work in the last year, which has helped in a huge number of people during the pandemic, and he deserves a treat. 
Okay, so I think it should be him. Oh, thank, um, thank you, Robert. You'll be my reference, of course. I, think. I, I, I should be. I, I tell you, I'm, I'm the person who definitely knows I would be no good in space. There's so many, I, it, the worst on so many different levels. You saw me trying to find my cables before the show today. I mean, that level of fury in a small space would be disastrous. Um, this is a question from, where should we go next? We've got sure, lots of questions to get through. Um, this is a question from Cody Helen, which is, uh, what were you least prepared for when you started training? Whoa, uh, when I started training, I think I wasn't prepared for life in on a military base in the Soviet Union. Um, I wasn't prepared for learning to speak Russian, right? So um, neither of those things. Um, and that was where, where, where we began. Um, after that, I became more and more prepared, so it was probably easier. But yeah, that the um, the business about sort of living a different, a completely different life um, in a different language was very, very weird. And then in terms of the actual, in, in, in the physical training, was there anything we were there any moments where you thought oh this is i was not expecting this or, or once you got into it did the rhythm kind of kick and you think right i, I know where i'm going to and i know what the, the destination is yeah i mean physically it's um it, it, it's i never found it a big deal i mean i was quite young so i'm probably reasonably strong but um um you can if you're healthy i think the theory was kevin can correct me if i'm wrong but i think if you're healthy you can pretty much train yourself to a type of fitness obviously you don't need to be able to um it's fun to run marathons in space you don't need to be able to run marathons on earth to be to, to be thought of as fit you need to be healthy you need to be strong um and there was a lot of strength training actually so working inside the spacesuit is quite uh, physically demanding um but you know we had done sort of weights and so on in the gym during my training less so beforehand but that was just all part of the 18 months of prep that we had um and then sort of just just generally keeping that cardio fitness going um, and but it's I think it's more of a mental health state as well. Once you've you've got like many people who are strong enough and and with the stamina of that, it's, it's that mental stamina to to keep going um, through times that are perhaps tough in the training and um, times when you you wonder why you're bothering doing it because well somebody else even though you're doing the training somebody else will probably get to fly not you um if you end up being the backup or if, if it all happens at all um so yeah there's a lot of doubt always so I think it's that that mental toughness as well um but I think like Helen was saying not to be the person who's so tough that they think uh, everything's just going to be so easy for me it's just yeah I'll just just um be like walk I'll, I can walk on water kind of thing so, so Kevin, I'm sure you'll be great. Absolutely. And it won't be a full stop in your life. You said it will be after all your parents, it will be a full stop. It will be a semicolon because it will lead to all sorts of other things, I'm sure. I like that. I'll take it as a semicolon. <laughs> <laughs> now, Lornier's got a question. Which is, apart from you going into space, Kevin, uh, this is for everyone. Uh, what do the panel think is going to be the next big thing in space travel, human or robotic, over the next two decades? So, Kevin, start with you. Well, do you know? Well, do you know? I've been watching uh, Perseverance um, on Mars at the moment, and a, I am just amazed the confidence with which JPL puts stuff onto Mars now. You know, when you look at the record of Martian exploration in the late the last decade of the twentieth century, it was so hit and miss, and now they're just chucking this stuff on and it's rolling around. So, flying a helicopter on Mars is the thing because. Uh, if you look at the ground that those rovers cover per unit time, it's not very far, really, for what you want for a big planet. And so being able to get probes up that have the capacity to fly distances and photograph distances, that for me is something I want to see. I want to see us, you know, up there with drones up, flying around canyons. I mean, how beautiful will that be? How wonderful will it be to explore like that? So for me, 
uh, as someone who spends a bit of time flying around in helicopters these days that's what i want to see and i'm really excited to see what what uh, ingenuity the helicopter that's flying around mars at the minute or at least that they had flying around mars what becomes of that helen yeah there'll be people waving at that helicopter so i think that'll be uh, perhaps won't leave that helicopter it won't live that long but um but yes i think certainly 20 years there'll be people up there um but also people elsewhere so in terms of human exploration i can see we'll we'll aim for mars possibly via the moon but 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 within 20 years we'll also be very close if not on an asteroid because that's the other thing is um we're thinking about um can we um, how, how can we use an asteroid? In fact, I was chatting to some um, astronauts on Friday afternoon um, and we were thinking about how, because you know, asteroids, of course, are so tiny, you get the G, you know, the gravity of pull of an asteroid is minuscule. It's like 10 to the minus 5 G that we get on Earth. So could a human being actually stand on an asteroid? You get all these artist pictures of people standing on an asteroid and sort of mining bits and taking stuff back back to their spacecraft. Well, it's unlikely people will stand on technology to allow humans to be kind of on, let's say, on the... I can see that being being the other thing as well. Um, and one more thing, if I may, just in terms of non-human stuff, um, we might need humans to sort of to get it up there, but I'd like to see us utilising energy. I'm sure there must be a way of us harnessing a load of solar energy and perhaps microwaving it, maybe let Earth, so we can use that here. Now, we'd obviously to make sure that we didn't then use that energy and heat up the planet with that energy but at least we're not burning fossil fuels to create energy i actually interviewed weeks ago who who is on that track um although i think there's a lot of regulate there's a lot under it um but on the question of 20 years time um with as the experience as the least space person here but as an earth scientist i think it would be an enormous shame if the overall consequence wasn't that we appreciated our own planet better because there's this kind of feeling that we, oh, we have to go somewhere else and you know we're a small planet in the middle of a very big solar system and yes there are planets and asteroids but there aren't that many and they're all quite rocky and they're not, not nearly as nice as a rainforest on earth and i think that if you know the once um low earth orbit flights you know open up a bit once there's more perhaps you can you know there'll be in a few years you'll be able to direct your own camera so there'll be a satellite going around and you can have a little joystick to point the camera at things that you want to see if there isn't like the big story of the solar system is our own planet and how fantastic it is and how complex it is and how amazing it is and we're not looking after it well enough and i think i'm hoping that you know space is that's great that's lovely but there's no point going out there if we don't value what we've got back here because this is this is the most alive complex varied environment in the solar system and so and and, it, and there's this careful balance in how we keep it going so i think we need a really big shift in how like how vulnerable we are that thing about carl sagan and the play, the pale blue dot everyone's sort of forgotten i think in the decades since, since then since he said that you know everyone you've ever known everybody who ever lived is on that dot and i think we need to remember that what we've got is really precious and we need to do a better job of of tr treating ourselves as part of the system part of this amazing system and looking after it so yeah go back to space but look back at the earth go up to space but look back at the earth but that is interesting because, because that, that might be the big lesson. Should we get to Mars and find out that the idea of terraforming and even the smallest amount of it is almost is, is far more difficult than we'd imagined, then you go back, oh, we're not able just to go to planet B then. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you, you're, you're right. Could barely grow a potato, right? So, well, 
The uh, uh, this is a very simple question for you now, Kev. Which is, uh, did you get to meet Hans Zimmer when you were doing Thirteen Minutes to the Moon? Do you know what I? I did meet him, and that was it. Was wonderful, actually. I loved making that podcast series. Um, it, you know, it it was it was just a joy. It was a labour of love to make. But but the process of sitting down with Hans Zimmer and his team and saying, how do you want this? music to go is actually quite an interactive thing he doesn't just bung you a cassette and go there you go there's, there's the soundtrack and so uh so we we had him and his team on the phone and 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 did some some skype chats with him uh, but then i met him after it had all been made and went to he's got this sort of wonderful apartment in london where he's got all of these beautiful sort of music para, you know bit, bits and pieces a moog modular in the corner and everything so yeah he was wonderful and and uh you know he loves he loves the whole adventure and the romance of space as well so so we got on well i think brilliant and uh you uh helen which is alan alan just uh wants to know do you want to go up into space again uh yes in a word <laughs> yeah. i thought you what that answer might be um thank you so helen have you got because I, I know you've been doing lots of events have you got anything coming up uh soon that people might want to uh make sure that they see or try and get a ticket for if uh if those kind of things going on yeah, so I'm um, uh, hopefully going to be at the, uh, an event in Farnborough, at, um, a sort of space exhibition, space exhibition event in Farnborough, uh, beginning of July time. Um, but I've just started a podcast myself, actually. So it's um, it's called Zero Pressure. So uh, we're talking about um, things that um, science and technology that uh, affect really um, things that global issues. Um, how can science and technology help to create sort of a better, a positive effect on sort of social environmental aspects that do affect the whole world? And um, uh, yeah, so with, with different guests and um, yeah, it's sort of a, it's already out. So it's uh, called Zero Pressure. Just check it out on podcasts. Brilliant. We'll make sure we, we, we tweet that and put it up on the website. Uh, Kev, is there anything people should be looking out for from you? Uh, uh, do you know what? I'm just coming out of my year of just being fully immersed in COVID-19. So I'm kind of looking around me and uh, I, well, I'll, I'll say this. So I was just something that Helen said earlier on is, is Alan Bean, I, I had dinner with once and he talked about coming back from space. And he said the first thing he did when he was free of all the duties is, is he'd just come back from, from, from the moon. And he said he went to the shopping mall, he bought himself an ice cream and he sat down and he watched people just walking around and going about their business. And that was wonderful. And so I really related to what, to what Helen was saying there, but that's kind of how I feel at the moment about coming out of the back of, of well, what, where we've been so far with COVID. So, um, so there'll be stuff. I haven't quite worked out what it is yet. Okay, so let's just say you're going to have an ice cream. That's excellent. Um, can I ask, I know I should, but just because we are coming out of everything at the moment is there have you got any advice you'd like to like to give people because of course some people do feel oh right it's kind of over now but what would you say in terms of us as we as we start to get back to what appears to be some normality what advice would you give to people yeah look i it's been so difficult hasn't it uh and things clearly are better than they were at the start of this year we are not out of the woods you know, all the winter, the woods, we were in the woods and the woods were on fire. The woods aren't on fire anymore, but we're we're not out. And we need to be vigilant and we need to listen to the advice that we're given and we need to be guided by the right experts and the right science. And things may change. And if they do, then we will have to listen carefully to that. Um, it's an overwhelming need for all of us to sort of get back what we had before it. But, you know, 
the best way the best way for us to getting back to our normal lives as fast as possible is to listen to the advice we're given and and if things change we are going to have to take a step back so so look it's good at the moment don't go crazy listen carefully don't throw all caution to the wind there is still a bit of threat out there thank you uh kevin coming up oh um you know the podcast ocean matters and intelligence Squad. all podcasts are very popular at the moment so the intelligence squad actually i did just interview uh nicholas schmittel who was embedded with virgin galactic so if anyone is interested in how the future of space flight is um planning out that will be on the intelligence website intelligence squared website soon and the book test gods is it's really interesting it's it's very it, it, asks, it asks a lot of questions and it's that none of them have been answered yet but it's really interesting in terms of how and who gets to go to space so there's that coming up um and other than that um yeah things over the summer but lots of little things to mention okay well we'll, we'll catch up again next week anyways as i said next week we're going to be at 10 a.m uh, in the morning i'm going to be uh, at trowbridge town hall doing a socially distanced gig uh, next saturday second gig i did a socially distanced gig at walthamstow trade hall on uh, on on thursday and it was all very well managed but i'm going to be coming down to trowbridge i should also mention brian cox and i are doing some warm-up gigs that have just been announced in september in places like dunstable and exeter and st albans so go and look at uh, brian's site uh, the Horizons tour. Loads more stuff coming up now because uh, Trent's had his holidays. Not now another one probably this decade, I reckon. Um, so we've got loads more shows coming this week. More tips for existence. More book shambles. Uh, and uh, don't forget, we've also done Silent Running special uh, of Uncanny Hour is uh, out with uh, Stuart Lee and Mark Kermode and uh, Gemma Arrowsmith and lots of others. Uh, have a lovely rest of the weekend. Look, it's it's sunny now. That's well, it is where I am, of course. That's geographically specific, I suppose sorry it may not be where you are i was never much of a meteorologist thanks trent bye thank you very much for listening support us at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles check out all the other stuff over at cosmic shambles.com follow us on twitter at cosmic shambles or cosmic shambles network on instagram and facebook bye for now this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network